910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. Today, we're continuing on with our series, Women in Scripture, and we're going to take a look at a woman named Hannah. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you may not have heard of Hannah before. Her story is found in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's appropriate that we tell her story on the heels of finishing the book of Ruth, because the time period she lived in was at the end of, or directly following, the time of the Judges, which is the time period Ruth lived in. And remember, the time of the Judges was a time when much of Israel was apostate. Instead of obeying God, everyone was doing whatever was right in their own eyes. But not everyone was. Just like Boaz and Ruth were pictures of godly people living within that corrupt society, the book of Samuel opens with another godly family, a man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah, who he loves, but who's barren. Elkanah also has another wife whose name is Penina. Rose, maybe we should point out here that Although polygamy became rampant in the Old Testament, even amongst God's people, and even though God put up with it for a time because of the hardness of men's hearts, Jesus points out that marriage was always to be one man and one woman who became one flesh. Exactly. Marriage was supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. In fact, the first time polygamy is mentioned as happening was with the evil Lamech in Genesis 4.19. It says that he took two wives and then he goes on to describe himself to the two of them as an ungodly, revengeful murderer. That's a lovely way for a husband to explain himself. <laughs> Makes you glad but, you married him. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, my. But like we said, at this point in Israel's history, everyone was doing what seemed right to them. And Elkanah had two wives. Unlike Hannah, Penina had borne several sons and daughters. And the Bible says that she relentlessly provoked Hannah and tormented her because she was childless. In fact, most of the barren women in the Bible had to deal with a rival wife who was very fertile and who would be a thorn in their side. That's true. Most of them did have someone like that. And Penina provoked her to the point that Hannah wept and wouldn't eat. We aren't told why she treated Hannah so badly, but we do know that Elkanah loved Hannah. That reminds me of Jacob with Rachel and Leah. It does. But you know what, Rose? If those other women had only known what God was up to, they might have kept their mouths shut. Whenever we read about a barren woman in the Bible, we know God is doing something big or important, so we need to pay attention. We should always pay attention when we read the Bible, Chris. Funny, Rose. All kidding aside, you're right. It should catch our attention when we read about a barren woman in the Bible. I'm thinking of Sarah, who eventually bore Isaac, Rebecca, who eventually bore Jacob and Esau, and Rachel, who eventually bore Joseph. Not to mention in the New Testament, Elizabeth, who bore John the Baptist. Right. But getting back to Hannah's story, Elkanah and his whole family make one of their yearly trips to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. They were following the law about yearly sacrifices, festivals, and feasts, which were times of worship for Israel. Yeah, this was supposed to be a happy time where God's people gathered together to have their sin atoned for and to make offerings to the Lord. They were to feast and rejoice because they were God's chosen people. But for Hannah, these times were hard. For her, they were full of sadness and heartache. Well, having a child in that culture was a big deal, and a woman's value and worth was really tied up in her ability to have children. Yeah, and not only was she dealing with societal pressure of not having children, plus the constant tormenting from Penina, but then there's her husband. 
The Bible says after the sacrifice, he gave out portions of the meat to all his family, but because he loved Hannah, he gave her a double portion of the sacrificed meat. That sounds good, but the Bible also tells us that year after year, Penina would provoke and taunt Hannah to the point where Hannah wouldn't eat. So giving her a double portion of the meat, in all likelihood, would have made her feel worse. She wasn't eating herself, and the second portion probably would have normally been meant for someone else, like the child she couldn't have. Was he trying to make her fat? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. But it wasn't making her no, feel better, No, she wasn't obviously. eating it, so... It could have been like a glaring reminder of her barrenness instead of seeming like a kind act of love. And it only gets worse. When she's too distraught to eat, her husband Elkanah says to her, why are you grieving? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? He totally doesn't get it. I mean, no, that is not showing her sympathy and trying to comfort her. He's saying, isn't the fact that you have me enough to make you happy? He should have said, I love you regardless of whether you can have children or not. He should have. Now, I want to be clear for our listeners that Elkanah is a worshiper of Yahweh and a godly man from everything that we read about him. I think these things are in here to show the depth of suffering that Hannah is experiencing. True. Elkanah does love her, even though the things he's doing and saying are probably causing her more heartache. Right. And there's something else that's interesting. We're used to many of our versions of the Bible saying, Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion of the sacrificed meat, quote-unquote, because he loved her. That would kind of go along with other childless women in the Bible, where the husband loved the barren wife more than the other wife or wives that were having kids. It would. But the wording in verse 5 can also be translated very differently than he gave her a double portion. It can be translated that he gave her the best portion or that he gave her a choice of portions, but... It also could mean that when he gave her her portion, he did it with a sad face because the Lord had closed her womb. Or it could be he gave her only one portion for he loved her even though the Lord had closed her womb. Hmm. That's interesting. It is. And some of those would be like rubbing salt in an open womb, even if Alkanah didn't mean to do it. They sure would. And like we said earlier, he's a godly man and we're not trying to bash him. Any of these translations can shed light on the amount of despair that Hannah felt, and I think that's the point here. You know, Rose, in many ways, God has put Hannah in a position where he has to be enough for her. That's a good point. It's not Elkanah that has to be enough. It's God. Exactly. And it's a good thing for us to ask ourselves. If we had nothing but God, would that be enough? That's a tough question to ask yourself. But you're right. It's good for examining where our heart is and what it's trusting in and where it's getting its comfort from. And God will put pressure on his people to turn them back to him. He does this with Israel. In fact, he did it over and over with them through the whole time of the judges. He did. It was a cycle. He's not turning Hannah back to himself as if she'd strayed from him like the nation of Israel. But he does have her in a position with lots of tormenting and zero human comfort. And like we said at the beginning, Hannah's story is found in the book of 1 Samuel. And if you know anything about the Old Testament up to this point, you may have guessed already that Hannah is going to have a child someday. This passage states twice that the Lord had closed her womb. He is sovereign over everything. And the chronicler is reiterating that fact, possibly so we can start to wonder what God's up to. Right. He has other plans that he's providentially working out. Right from the beginning of 1 Samuel, not only introduced to this God-fearing family, we're also introduced to the family of priests who are serving the Lord in the tabernacle right then. Eli the priest and his two sons 
Hophni, and Phineas, who also serve as priests. If you read the book, you'll see they fit the profile of many of the priests who were acting ungodly during the time of the judges. So Elkanah and his family go to worship, and at this feast, Hannah is crying and praying in such a distressed manner that the Bible says she was, quote-unquote, speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Most of us, if not all of us, have had times where we're so distressed we can't even form the words. And in this case, Eli the priest doesn't recognize that she's actually praying, but instead he thinks she's drunk. Right, and he confronts her about it. So she's getting more bad stuff heaped on her. But she explains that she's not drunk, that she's not had any wine or strong drink, and she's only been pouring out her soul to the Lord. And then she mentions her anxiety and her troubles. But the Bible doesn't say that she told him what her troubles were. No, it doesn't. But Eli has softened his attitude towards her, and he tells her, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. That's from 1 Samuel 1.17. It could be that Eli prayed that God would grant her petition, or it could be he was prophesying that God would grant her petition. Either way, these are the first comforting words she's heard, or at least the first ones were told about. And Hannah, for the first time in the story, is glad after she's done praying. The Bible says she actually eats after this. You know, Chris, sometimes when we're the most burdened by something, if we cry out to the Lord about it, our whole mindset can change. And even though we don't know if our circumstances will change, we just get a peace about us. Yeah, I'm thinking of 1 Peter 5, 7 right now. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And Hannah did go humbly before the Lord. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Neither of those verses says anything about getting what you want. No, they don't. But they do tell us to cast our anxieties on God because he cares for us and that because he can give us a peace that even we can't understand how we get it. Yes, and that's appropriate in Hannah's situation. Because Hannah's prayer was no ordinary prayer or petition. She made a vow of two things if God would give her a son. First she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. That would take tremendous peace that passes understanding. It would. To give away a son you wanted so desperately. But Hannah wasn't kidding when she vowed to give the Lord her son. This is hard to imagine, especially in light of the fact that she'd waited so long. But you're right, she wasn't kidding. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the second part of the vow was, and no razor shall touch his head. What she's saying here is that she'd raise him according to the Nazarite law. The Nazarite vow meant that the child she would have would not drink any wine or other fermented drink, not even using wine vinegar. So much for salad. And she wouldn't either while she was pregnant with him. In addition to that, they wouldn't cut his hair or he wouldn't become defiled by being near a dead body, not even a relative. And if they even somehow accidentally became defiled, they would have to cleanse themselves, shave their heads, and start the vow period all over again from the beginning. You know, Rose, I think it's interesting that Eli accuses her of being drunk and she replies that she hasn't had any strong drink. It's almost like she's preparing for being pregnant and keeping the vow that she knew she was going to make. 
I don't know if she was not drinking, acting in faith that God would grant her request, or if she just hadn't had anything to drink up to that point. But I just thought it was interesting. That is interesting. If Eli hadn't thought she was drunk, we wouldn't know that she hadn't had any strong drink. No, we wouldn't. I think we should point out here, though, that even if she acted in faith by not drinking, there's still no guarantee that God would give her a child. Our faith needs to be in the fact that God is in control of all things and that he's working for our good in all circumstances, regardless of whether he does the things we desperately hope he will or not. That's an important point, Chris. God is good all of the time. And he works for our good and for his glory, which is the ultimate good, even through things that are not good or even through things that are evil. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Part of that good is that we're becoming more and more like Jesus, which is sometimes really painful. It is. We're told in the Bible that we'll share in Jesus' suffering. As we say all the time, being a Christian doesn't mean that your life will be a bed of roses. Certainly not. And if anyone's teaching you the opposite of that, don't let them teach you anymore. Exactly. Run. Run. But getting back to Hannah, it's also important to point out here that Hannah wasn't trying to make some kind of deal with God. She wasn't saying, if you do this, then I'll give him to you. No, she certainly wasn't. She wasn't trying to make a deal with God. And next, the Bible says that the family got up early the next morning and worshiped before going home. And it goes on to say, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. When it says that Elkanah knew his wife, we know what that means. It means, you know, they had sex. Yeah. And the Lord remember her doesn't mean that God forgot about her for a while. And then one day out of the blue, he goes, oh, I remember Hannah's problem. God knows everything. He doesn't forget. Exactly. So what does that mean? It means he's going to act according to his character. He's about to further his plan of redemptive history. And like we said, this is not just about a barren woman named Hannah who God is going to eventually give a son so that she can be happy. This is about Israel and eventually King Jesus. Like we said earlier, God is doing something bigger here. Rose, I listened to Alistair Begg talking about this passage and he made a really good point about this part. Elkanah and Hannah had been having sex all along, but unless God blesses the seed, nothing happens. That's a good point. And it's the same with spreading the seed of the gospel message. Unless God blesses it, nothing's going to happen with the person. Absolutely. So Hannah has a baby and she names him Samuel because she had asked for him from the Lord, according to verse 20. And the next thing we're told is that it's time for Elkanah and the family to go and worship again. And they do. But Hannah doesn't go this time. She says she's going to keep the child at home with her until he's weaned. That was about three years in that culture. Women could go to the yearly feast if they wanted, but they weren't obligated to go according to Exodus 23:17. So Hannah's not doing anything wrong by staying home. No, she's not. And let's face it, Samuel couldn't have served the Lord as a baby. <laughs> What's she going to do, crawl around? <laughs> so she keeps him at home for three years until he's old enough to start learning from Eli. But Hannah has been proactive in his training. She's raised him in those years to know the Lord, as we see later in verse 28, where it says that Samuel worshipped. Right. And I imagine those three years were pretty precious to her. I'm sure they were. They had to be. Scripture says he or they, depending on your translation, worship after the sacrifice right before they're about to leave Samuel there in service of the Lord in the tabernacle. And each year Hannah made him a new tunic and brought it to him when they came for the yearly time of worship. While we can't understand what this would be like for a mother to do, I certainly can't. 
Hannah was devoted to God and was thankful that he took away the shame and sadness for her being barren, so she keeps her vow. It is an amazing picture of faith and also a picture of thankfulness to the Lord. And next in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have Hannah's prophetic prayer. Rose, before we take a look at that prayer, I want to say that the prayer we're about to look at shows something about Hannah's prayer life that I hate to say this, but is totally the opposite of what my prayer life was like when I was young. I think I talked about this in our first podcast episode, but back then I would run to God when there was a problem I wanted him to handle, but that was about it for my prayer life. We've seen Hannah do the same. We've seen her take her problems to God in prayer, but in the prayer of hers that we're going to look at next, we'll see that Hannah had a prayer life that shows a deep relationship with God. You're right, and you're certainly not alone, Chris. I think a lot of us did that and probably still do that. But this is a woman who doesn't just take her problems to God as if he's some sugar daddy in the sky. This woman realizes that God is to be praised all the time, in all circumstances. She knows him and she has a true relationship with him. One other thing I want to mention about Hannah's character is that despite Elkanah's other wife, Penina, treating her really badly, I mean, think about it, the Bible refers to her as Hannah's rival, and it says that she provoked her and greatly vexed her, and that means she brought trouble and distress and agitation. Despite all that, Hannah entrusted herself to the Lord and pleaded her cause with him. Then when he delivers her, she praises him. She doesn't deal with Penina herself. She has full confidence in God and trust that he will repay. He'll do whatever he's going to do with her enemy as well as the nation's enemies. What we refer to as Hannah's prayer is actually more like a song of thanksgiving and praise. It's very much like David's prayer at the end of 2 Samuel, And much like the Magnificat, which is Mary's song of praise, which we're going to talk about in an upcoming episode. And it's full of theology. It is. Why don't you read the first verse of this for us, Rose? I will. It starts out in 1 Samuel verse 2, and I'll read the first couple verses. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And we encourage you to read the rest of that because it's a beautiful prayer. It is a beautiful prayer. And starting with verse 1 of it, Hannah gives all the glory to God being the one who delivered her from her barrenness and gave her triumph over her enemies. She's not in any way saying she did anything at all. She's saying it's all him. Then she goes on to say there's no one holy like God. Rose, I listened to a sermon the other day by Paul Washer about prayer, and he said that when we think about God's holiness, a lot of us just think that that means God is sinless. But he made a really good point that it means much, much more than that. It means that God is set apart. There isn't anything or anyone like him, nothing even close. The prophet Isaiah says that God is not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy which means he's perfect in holiness because the number three in the Bible is a symbol of perfection like the Trinity. I love that point from Paul Washer, and it's something we should keep in mind. As believers, we're being made more and more holy by the Holy Spirit's work in us, and we're to be set apart, or in other words, we're to be different from the world. Hannah obviously had a high view of God. There isn't anything or anyone like him, not even close. And she goes on to talk about God's omniscience, that he knows everything, and she acknowledges that he has control of life and death, poverty and wealth, and that he humbles some and exalts others. And God went on to bless her beyond what she could imagine. He opened her womb again, and Hannah had more children after Samuel. 
She had three sons and two daughters, which we find out in verse 21. Hannah's prayer is also prophetic. She's not just thanking God and talking about his dealing with the wicked in her own circumstances, but also for the nation of Israel. She celebrates the sovereignty of God in making her womb fruitful and that he will give strength to his king and will, quote-unquote, exalt the anointed, according to verse 10, which is the end of her prayer. Rose, Israel didn't have a king at this point either. Exactly. And Hannah's reference to God's anointed is a messianic prophecy. The prediction that God would exalt the horn, which means increase the strength of, the anointed king was fulfilled in part during the reigns of David and Solomon, but the ultimate anointed one is the Messiah, Jesus. We don't know much more about this godly woman, Hannah, who vowed to leave her only son to minister before the Lord and then did it. But we're told that he grew up in the presence of the Lord and that yearly Hannah took him that tunic to wear. And we know that Samuel led Israel from the period of the judges through the first kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. You can read the rest of Samuel's story in the first 25 chapters of 1 Samuel. Join us next week as we take a look at Mary and Martha. We hope you're enjoying our series on women in scripture so far. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple or whatever platform you're listening from. And please feel free to leave questions, comments, and feedback that you may have. And check out our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. Have a blessed day.